Hey Derek, how you doing? Hey there. Are you doing better than Nikki Haley, who lost last night's Nevada GOP primary to none of these candidates? Well, you know, she was the first human, so I guess you know she can take a little uh, solace in, in that that no human finished above Nikki Haley in the in the primary. There you go. That's an accomplishment. She can put that on her resume. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show, Derek. We're going to be talking about some of your reporting around election security. And later on the show, um, we're going to be talking about national security contexts of AI. That's coming up today on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm your host, Elias Grohl. On today's show, we got CyberScoop reporter Derek Johnson. Welcome on the show, Derek. Thank you very much. Welcome back. You're becoming a regular. This week, you published a story about a conference featuring the nation's election administrators and what they're thinking about going into the 2024 election year. How are election administrators feeling? Yeah. So, you know, when I went into this story, like I really wanted to do um, a heat check on how um, a lot of the national discussions that we're having around elections and cybersecurity and technologies, how all of that was sort of trickling down to the ground level where, uh, you know, for people who are going to actually be running and managing the elections this year. Um, And by that, I mean, you know, we cover primarily cybersecurity and technology. We engage with a lot of sources who are experts in those fields. Those sources are not always necessarily experts in the nuts and bolts of how election administration is run and the needs that come with it. And so while we're having kind of these discussions around AI and deep fakes and hacking threats to voting machines and election systems, Um, It is important to keep in mind that those are just parts of a much bigger challenge that a lot of these officials are facing right now, which is, you know, how do I make sure that we have a smooth, competent election in my state or jurisdiction? How do we best prepare with the resources that we have? Um, And cybersecurity has become obviously more important to that debate in in recent years. But I just kind of wanted to canvas secretaries of state and election officials, directors and, and, and poll workers um, about what was on their minds uh, primarily going into 2024. Yeah. So this was a conference that was hosted at the University of Maryland um, through the Election Assistance Commission, I believe. And yes. folks were talking about how they're preparing for 2024. And I think it's fair to say there was some anxiety in the room, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's certainly, I think, kind of burgeoning anxieties around the role that, you know, AI generated disinformation is poised to play in this election. I think that the New Hampshire robocall really validated those suspicions in the minds of a lot of folks. Um, But, you know, the, the most frequent concerns that I heard when talking to election officials were really around things like, I don't have enough money to train my staff or I don't have enough poll workers in my state. And then particularly since 2020, uh, something I heard a lot uh, of was how do I communicate with this substantial section of voters who no longer believe in the integrity of the election process? How do I educate them about safeguards? And then the follow on discussions there, how do I keep my people safe? 
how do I, Physic how do I physically safe, right? Yeah. Physically safe. Yeah. Um, how do I protect them from threats, from harassment, from violence, from swatting, from bomb threats, um, all of which have happened in alarming numbers over this year. So, you know, happy to talk about AI, but, you know, th th those were also, I think, you know, particularly the threats to election officials and how you communicate with those skeptical voters. Um, that was a big, big, big topic. Yeah. I think it's when you talk to election administrators, I th think it's, it's hard to overstate the way that the last election and the, I think the events of, of January 6th have really shifted the context here where you have um, a significant segment of the American population that now believes that the last election was fraudulently conducted and that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And this has created, um, you know, a, a willingness among large numbers of quite radicalized individuals within the United States to commit acts of violence against election officials. And, you know, we can talk a lot about how AI might, you know, erode our sense of truth, but that doesn't matter very much if there's, uh, to local election officials anyway, you know, if there's a man with a gun coming into a polling place or, you know, if, um, a local election official or state election administrator is uh, getting swatted, you know, because they're trying to, um, you know, implement a, a paper balloting system or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and and sort of uh, states have really responded, I think, to this in two ways. Um, they have tried to do take a transparency track with um, voters that are skeptical but are but are willing to perhaps be convinced or, 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 or be educated on the way that the election process works. So a lot of states like, um, you know, uh, you know, Ohio and, and, and other places have um, started holding regular uh, uh, meetings and sessions where they will invite voters to come in to, you know, look at voting machines, to talk to their local election officials, see that they're sort of, you know, their local neighbors, not some um, federal deep state official there to rig the election. They invite people in to audit uh, elections to certify voting machines. So that's kind of for 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 some cross section of voters, you can engage with them <clears throat> in that way and educate them about the way this stuff works, and that helps. But for others, um, the reality is is that for voters who still believe Donald Trump's claims of a stolen election, there's for some of them there, there's no amount of educating or engagement that's going to work, and that's when it turns to more violent and dangerous actions like threats, like swatting like sending lethal packages. Um, and so a lot of election offices are uh, working to reach out and have pre-established contacts and procedures in place with uh, law enforcement to make sure that if there is a swatting call at your house, the police knows that you're a target, that they know to be on guard, um, so you can more quickly have uh, threats and violent acts uh, investigated and prosecuted. Um, but a lot of election officials are, are worried and scared right now, and, and that makes it you know, only that much harder to focus on everything else they need to do. Mm. Are local election officials, state election officials, are they confident that they can conduct a, a safe and fair election in 2024? Always. Okay. That's all that, that's always the, the, the attitude that they have, no matter what the resources are, no matter what the challenges are. You know, we saw this in the lead up to 2020. We saw it in the midterm elections of 2018 and 2022. There are um, a lot of concerns and challenges that are in place, but um, a, a lot of election officials have uh, have been doing this for a long time and they know how to work with the resources that they have to deliver elections. But something else to keep in mind is that since 2020, a lot of those more experienced election officials 
have uh, have resigned or left um, their, their their jobs, maybe because of um, just exhaustion, maybe because of threats, maybe because of uh, the sort of post 2020 uh, uh, skepticism from 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 voters, and they're being replaced by election um, officials and poll workers and things like that. Who this is going to be their first time doing this, and so that is also something to keep in mind that that a significant uh, percentage of the folks carrying out the elections this year um, are not going to be as experienced as what we've seen in in, in past elections. Um, and that's going to make it really hard to deal with things like having an AI deepfake dropped into your uh, jurisdiction on the eve of an election, um, things like that. Yeah. I want to close just by talking briefly about that um, deepfake incident in New Hampshire. In the run-up to primary day in New Hampshire, some Democratic voters were targeted uh, by phone calls featuring an AI-generated voice of Joe Biden. That voice urged Democratic voters to stay away from the polls on uh, primary day. Um, it was fairly quickly discovered, and um, New Hampshire authorities uh, vowed to investigate. And this week, um, we got some news about who was behind that robocall. Briefly, who was that? Yeah, so um, there is uh, a, uh, a company in Texas called Life Corporation, um, which uh, has a history of an, a, an individual uh, named Walter Monk, who uh, uh, have a history of engaging in um, uh, campaigns and schemes like this. Uh, in the past, uh, New Hampshire investigators were able to collaborate with um, some industry uh, uh, groups that uh, are uh, block robocalls and also trace them back to their original sources. Um, that uh, wound up, uh, the calls from New Hampshire wound up uh, routing back to uh, uh, a a uh, voice service provider called Lingo Telecom, who also has a, sort of a very long rap sheet when it comes to um, uh, uh, robocalls and things like that. Um, uh, they, the people at Lingo Telecom, according to New Hampshire investigators, uh, pointed the finger at Life Corporation and Monk. I think the interesting thing about it is that, you know, um, none of these entities are particularly easy to find or to get a hold of, which is mm -hmm. probably in line with what you would expect for um, entities who carry out these kinds of things. Uh, Life Corporation doesn't appear to have uh, uh, an easily findable website. Um, the numbers that I called several for Life and Lingo, several of them disconnected. Um, you know, uh, uh, this it, it's it's all it's all kind of very very shady and and and, and interesting. But they they have uh, the New Hampshire authorities uh, have uh, put out document preservation and record uh, preservation notices to uh, these uh, 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 you know corporations, and um, it, it it seems like this is probably going to be uh, not the end. Of, of, of this story. And I think we are probably looking, uh, particularly given the, the, the history um, of, of these entities behind it, if the, if the evidence is what investigators say it is, um, I think we are, we are gonna see some charges here um, at some point down the line. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair to expect. Um, yeah, you know you're living in 2024 when you have a shadowy Texas telecommunications company sending AI deepfake phone calls to New Hampshire voters. That's the world we're living in now. Derek, thank you for your wonderful reporting on this. I'm sure we will be back to talk about our current obsession, Walter Monk. And um, that'll be on a future episode of Safe Mode. Thanks so much, Derek. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, man. 
Coming up next on Safe Mode, I'm joined by Jack Shanahan, who retired from the U.S. Air Force in 2020 after leading a series of AI initiatives at the Pentagon. Everyone seems to agree that AI is going to revolutionize warfare, but exactly how is very much up for debate. Jack Shanahan joins us to walk through how the U.S. military is approaching AI and integrating the technology into its warfighting capabilities. That's up next on Safe Mode. I'm joined today by Jack Shanahan, who has worked at the center of the U.S. military's attempt to integrate AI into how wars are fought. In 2020, Shanahan retired as a lieutenant general from the U.S. Air Force after a 36-year career. He was the inaugural director of the Department of Defense's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center and was the first director of the Pentagon's Algorithmic Warfare Cross-Functional Team better known as Project Maven. He is currently an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Jack Shanahan, welcome to Safe Thank Mode. you. Thank you so much for having me into your spaces. As I said, it's nice to do this in person and not on a Zoom call. Absolutely. It's it's nice to be returning to a bit more in-person life rather than through the computer screen. Love it. Yeah. So I want to start with a broad and hopefully kind of level setting question and ask you, how do you think AI will change how wars are fought? Part of my answer will be maybe a little bit surprising to some people, but I don't know yet. It's going to be unpredictable. That's part of what you see with these major transitions in technology. And we have a fondness sometimes of talking about technology transition points. They're never points. They're transition eras, which may last over a century or more. And some people have used this example of electricity. When electricity first came in, the military was not the first user of electricity. It took a while to start figuring out how to take electricity and make it integral part to, to operations across the entire United States military at the time. That's, that's what it feels like to me with AI. But so let me give you my, my blanket statement as I believe that AI could make the Department of Defense better in every possible aspect from undersea to outer space to everything in between to include the electromagnetic spectrum or call cyberspace. And what gets left off the table, what I think is just as important in here in the near term is what we would call the administrative or bureaucratic functions of running the Department of Defense. All of that could benefit from AI. The question is, where could it be done the fastest and the most effective. Uh, we started that with Project Maven using computer vision to detect, you know, detect objects, track objects, classify objects. That's a starting point. But there's so much more that has to be had. The department just has to sort of go big into this and get mm -hmm. it. But in terms of what it would look like in 20 years from now, I honestly don't know. It will be depend on the decisions of hundreds or thousands of people individually that will decide to do this or don't do this, to adopt this technology, that technology, come up with a new war fighting concept, mm -hmm. or just decide that's not the right technology for this. Over time, we will begin to understand that. And, and this is something I'll just, I'll stop here, but I think it's equally important. We talk about the technology of artificial intelligence, unbelievably important. But ultimately, it's about what you do with that technology. It's an enabling function for the rest of the military operations, what we call developing new operating concepts. So you have a new technology. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to fight differently? Are you going to organize your services differently because they need to fight differently because we've never seen technology like this before? All of those have to be addressed simultaneously. And that means going out and trying experiments, war games table talk exercises, giving the users a little bit more time, maybe it's a lot more time, to play around with the technology and decide, is this going to work or not? Or how do we adjust it to fit the warfighting missions of the department? When you look at the state of AI development today and 
you know, the type of technology that's available today, where do you see the opportunities for military applications? So, so I would I would point to three, and they're broad categories, but they're important broad categories. First is computer vision. Yeah. Uh, it's been around for a long time. There's nothing new about computer vision, but it's getting better and better all the time. These technologies about vision transformers, uh, which is sort of the latest and greatest technology, it's getting better and better. So that's one. That is what the core of Project Maven was computer vision. How do I detect an object, classify an object, track an object. Simple as that. And then you decide what is your taxonomy, building, vehicle, person, adult, child, whatever. Then natural language processing. Natural language processing is everywhere today. If you use Google Translate, you're using a form of natural language processing. For us, what we were using it for is you pick up all these things off the battlefield, everything from a thumb drive to what we call pocket pocket litter. Somebody's got a piece of paper, something scribbled on it. How can you use a machine to help you translate that as fast as possible and put some operational context around that? And then now, of course, that everybody wants to talk about is generative AI, a form of machine learning, but a very different kind of artificial intelligence that is exploding at a rate that nobody outside of a small group of researchers over the past 10 years been working on this saw coming, be honest with you. It's, it really caught people off guard. And in terms of the military use of generative AI, that is truly a work in progress. I think it's going to spend the next couple of years learning what works, what doesn't work. Do we trust certain parts of it? Do we not trust other parts of it? There's a long way to go. That's where the, everybody wants to talk about generative AI. Mm -hmm. But these other applications of AI, I think are just uh, everything from predictive maintenance to warfighter health to putting uh, AI on platforms and sensors down to what the term is the tactical edge, all the way down to the user, whatever user may be at some individual level, working cyberspace, working Marine Corps, Army, whatever. So all of those kind of broad categories are all ripe for the department sort of absorbing into its operations. Mm. I want to return in a bit to how the U.S. military is integrating AI into its operations. But first, I want to kind of step back and, and consider the conversation around AI in DC at the moment, which is very focused on the relationship with China and the fear in Washington. And, and I think a, a fair bit of, a fair bit of fear mongering as well, that uh, China might be able to gain a military advantage over the United States by virtue of its AI capabilities. But I don't think there's been a very clear understanding of what China's actual AI capabilities are. Uh, so I'm curious, what's your understanding of how China is using it, AI in a military context? And what do you think its capabilities are vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. in this domain? Well, a couple of things. This is a very um, um, sort of broad but uh, crucial topic to discuss. And, and I agree with your point, by the way. There tends to be uh, sort of an overly dramatic description of either side, US side or Chinese side, to the point where at least you start talking international relations theories. This thing's called the strategic dilemma. Two nation states that have this deep mistrust of each other, and you begin to assume the worst of each other when it comes to new technology, because you each worry that the other side will gain some massive competitive advantage, whether that's an economic military advantage uh, or military advantage or some combination thereof. So when two sides don't trust each other and don't talk to each other and each assume the worst of each other with AI, you worry, I have to worry a little bit about an AI race to the bottom. Mm. That are we just going to try to put out technology as fast as possible as opposed to thinking, is it the right technology? Is it the safe technology? So a starting point is, and this broadly speaking, international relations theory, you sort of talk about state black boxes and those things. That's a, that's a little bit of an arcane discussion, but it's important in this context because so little is known 
about what each side is doing deep inside its military, that if you don't trust each other, you have to come in the argument with the assumption that it's the worst case scenario. They're going to come up with a black swan capability mm. that's just going to win the war overnight, which does that exist? It does not exist, but that's sort of that, that hype piece that you talk about. Yeah. So it does get overstated in terms of capability. Now, beyond that, when you start talking about People's Liberation Army and China and the military, uh, as I found out in my beginnings of Project Maven, we didn't know nearly enough about what was going on. Why? Because the intel community wasn't collecting against the sort of things that the commercial companies would talk about as the AI stack. Mm. What's their compute look like? What's their data look like? It's a really important question because we would get all this full motion video from the Middle East. Does China have the equivalent of that? Well, they don't. So what are they doing to build their models? What does it look like to have uh, open source models or are they doing proprietary models by Chinese companies? Where are they going to build this on top? What does their platform look like? What tools are they going to use? That is not something the intelligence community of the United States was used to focusing on. So we had long discussions about what should you be collecting against? Mm -hmm. What matters most to me as the director of the Joint AI Center to understand what my counterparts are working on and how fast they're going. So that was one part of it. That's why I call for this idea of a techno-economic assessment. It has to be a net assessment of the United States versus China or the United States against Russia. Pick your country. How is the United States doing vis-a-vis -vis this other country in developing these new technologies? And then with China, I think you have to enter this discussion with the assumption of it is a top-down driven, bottom-up supported, but from President Xi Jinping down to the township and village enterprise level. And everybody in between said, we're marching out as a national project to bring in artificial intelligence in China. So I have to assume that will involve People Liberation Army. But where I do get a, a, a little bit cynical at times is when people say uh, that China has won the, the AI race. That's just so false. I, I, it, what do we mean by the AI race? Yeah. What part? The, part? the people part? The academic research part? How many patents they have? It's all of that together. So what I'm most interested in is what I was most interested in on the US side is what are they doing with this technology? Are they coming up with new operating concepts that are going to surprise us and lead to an economic and military advantage in the battlefield? And that battlefield may be cyberspace. It may be in an aircraft carrier, whatever that equivalent is. We don't know all that right now. But I will say, I'm, I am fairly confident in saying this on the record, is they're having the same challenges that our Department of Defense has to bring these technologies into scale. It's about scale. Yeah. Wonderful little pilot projects can be shown to be successful. So what I'm interested in is what are they doing? How fast are they moving? Are they reorganizing some of their forces to take these technologies into a sort of consideration? And then what are they going to do with it? How are they going to operate differently? So we're getting more of that today. And of course, uh, you know, I'm not privy to the inside classified information anymore, but I just know it's challenging. There's no, there's no light switch that you flip and all of a sudden you become the country that's leading the world in military AI yeah. integration. So you're involved in these track two dialogues at the moment yeah. with, um, Chinese officials and, and researchers. These are unofficial talks between the two sides um, aimed at gaining a bit of mutual understanding at what's happening in the AI space, if you will. I'm wondering if, if you might be able to describe these conversations a little bit and maybe what you've learned about Chinese AI capabilities in these dialogues. Yeah, You used a, a sort of a term that is central to what we're talking about here, which is gaining a mutual understanding. We all know that we're not going to reveal operational sensitive information. That, of course, no, no side is going to do that. But in terms of coming together and talking about a technology that is so new 
and moving so fast that if we don't have some sort of conversation about this, we go back to what I said earlier. We're going to get into a, a completely mistrust situation where we're worried the other side is moving so much faster than us, we have no choice but to field a system that's maybe not ready for field, that hasn't been through sort of rigorous test and evaluation. So the discussions we have with uh, both bilateral and multilateral, China's part of both, but uh, in one case, uh, that Brookings Institution uh, leads with uh, Tsinghua University is, is a bilateral one, is as basic as walking in and talking about what do we mean by mm. the term say, that's a good example, a very good example, an autonomous weapon system. It turns out that's not just a translation problem. It's also an interpretation problem. There are different things. Like you can translate it, and there is a term for it, uh, like weapon system. Okay, citong. All right. So, mm. what do you mean by that? How do you? you what is autonomous system? Well, what is an AI-enabled autonomous system? And it turns out when you do that exercise, you're talking a little bit past each other. So, mm. reaching a common understanding of basic terms and definition is not a bad starting point. Because let's say each country then moves to sort of a formal engagement track one dialogue and you're trying to come up with an agreement on something that you're talking past each other so the more work that can be done at the track two level and and things like um, coming up with a proposed draft ai code of conduct here is how countries should operate if they have ai enabled military systems which brings in a lot of different things but that's a good discussion to start with and then this idea of the importance of test and evaluation some people will question legitimately question why even do this what do we get out of it? For me, I'm just prefer dialogue over no dialogue because we mm. get to know who the players are. The same players on both sides will be informing the people that talk to the official government officials when, when and if they have these more official state-to-state -state conversations, which, according to what came out of San Francisco, out of, out of the side discussion between the two presidents, is yes, there is an agreement to talk about this. Now, what that looks like, I don't know yet. Yeah, this was the statement that came out of the meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden in yeah. San Francisco. There was, uh, I would say, a, a vague and rather broad yes. statement. <laughs> I, agree about, with, I agree with you. Yes, about uh, beginning discussions around AI. Yeah. I would say maximum the, flexibility. Exactly, right? Is there anything about these discussions that have surprised you? No, other than we started from a position where we weren't talking to each other. So just mm. to have an initial discussion on basic terms, definitions, and understanding. And, I, and I'll give you one example. It's not a surprise. If I were to say I was pleasantly surprised, is every country in this multilateral track, too, agrees in principle that the idea of using artificial intelligence on the decision-making apparatus of releasing nuclear weapons is a bad thing. Very high That's level. Great. That may be. That sounds That's really a pretty positive. good start. That, that sounds really positive. Very yeah. positive. Yeah. Now, now we have a lot of work to do below that level. But China and Russia, in principle, agree with that statement. In fact, China, yeah. very forcefully, in my opinion, said, "That's crazy. Why would we do that?" Now, what does that mean in practice? Hmm. There's a lot more work to be done. And and I think both sides. Just the United States has been very clear in the past reluctant to sign up to a ban on something because it would unnecessarily constrain United States behavior. I right. China, China would say the exactly same thing. So there's a little suspicion on both sides about what do you what do you mean by we're not going to talk a ban. Let's talk about best practices. Let's talk about international um, norms and behaviors. That makes more sense to most countries right now because you're, you're still in the feeling each other out sort of stage, understanding what do we mean by this. So if you're still working on definitions, you're not going to go straight to an agreement on banning some kind of weapon system that one doesn't exist yet. And two, both sides are not going to agree to ban it. Mm. When it comes to military applications of AI today, 
a lot of defense intellectuals are looking to the conflict in Ukraine as an example of what this might look like. I'm curious, when you look at Ukraine and the way that that conflict is being prosecuted, what are the lessons for you, uh, particularly as it relates to AI? On one hand, I'd say we're always a little cautious in trying to apply lessons from one conflict to another conflict that is in the future to be determined. However, always fighting the last war, always fighting the last war. However, uh, with that in mind, I think there are very, very big lessons to be drawn from Ukraine, even as we speak, even as the conflict is still mired in in a certain almost stalemate phase of the fight. And that is what Ukrainian military forces have done, which is take bleeding edge technology in combining that with these legacy systems to the point where you've got trench warfare happening at the same time as at least sort of uh, small tactical drones are flying around helping spot targets and, and, and helping artillery sort of launch. Whether or not they're AI enabled, it's a valid question. I don't think we've, there's been some talk about that. I don't think we've really seen any um, systematic use of AI enabled autonomous weapon systems in Ukraine. But what you're seeing is, I think the trend lines are clear uh, for a lot of us. We saw this coming several years ago, the idea of Smarter systems, smaller systems, attritable systems. What do we mean by attritable? You can afford to lose something. Mm. Doesn't mean it's disposable, but the chances are you may lose it. And of course, Ukraine, the numbers are something about 10,000 drones a month are being lost to the battlefield from jamming, from being shot down or whatever, and just getting smarter and even swarming systems. Does that apply to the South China Sea or to the Taiwan Strait? Um, Some does and some doesn't. But we'd be foolish to ignore those lessons and seeing the trend lines of technology being introduced very rapidly. And what you see in Ukraine is some people that may have been born in Ukraine, came to the United States, educated in the United States, went to Silicon Valley, did startups and ever now have gone back over to help their country come up with these new technologies. So what I'm most impressed by of all the things that Ukraine is doing, I'm impressed by by everything, but their ability to take these new technologies and adapt on the fly. And if it doesn't work, they throw it out. But if it works, they make it better and better and better. And it's not just the defense industry in Ukraine, it's the government and it's academia and industry working together. That's happening. So I think those, to me, the lessons are, it's real. The the world is changing. These systems are going to get smarter. They're going to get smaller. They're going to get cheaper, um, sometimes disposable, sometimes attritable. We need to take those lessons and apply them to our own yeah. United States Department of Defense. I've heard some people describe Ukraine as a nation of tinkerers <laughs> and that that kind of approach has been quite productive in how the war has been prosecuted, where you have a lot of folks working in the garage and building drones for the military. Uh, I, how do you, applicable to other conflicts do you think that that kind of tinkering yeah i like I, I like that phrase and and here's i'll say two things about that on the u.s side we need more of that because i accept the premise that uh, organizations like this special competitive studies project i'm an advisor to their defense panel this is one of the postulations put on the table is in the next fight the side that is able to adapt faster than the other in terms of software and even hardware is going to get an advantage mm. does it mean they will lose the fight if they don't do it i don't know that's a that's a question I'm unable to answer right now, but the idea of tinkering and doing it faster than your adversary, put it in terms of sort of the oodle of the the orientation phase of the oodle. I just want to move faster than my adversary. I'll do it that way. So I'm a fan of that, but Mm -hmm. it could also be a little bit more problematic. And even those that are doing this in Ukraine right now will say it's a wonderful example of decentralization early in the conflict. But now they do need more centralization to provide the overall command and control of these forces. How are they operating these forces? Where can they send this or that force to fill a gap that's over here or whatever? Those are some things we have to think very seriously about is that balance between centralized command and control and decentralized experimentation and execution. Mm. 
I want to return to your your work on Project Maven. And so for listeners who might not be familiar with it, this was a Pentagon project that was principally focused on image recognition. And it was a pathfinding project for the Pentagon to, to figure out how to integrate AI tools uh, into the warfighting enterprise, if you will. And one of the contractors on that project was Google. And Google's participation in this project sparked uh, an employee protest uh, that resulted in the company withdrawing from the project. And I think that protest, is fair to say, became emblematic of tensions between the Pentagon and Silicon Valley and their ability to work together. And so I'm I'm curious, first off, if you know you might reflect on that experience a bit and what your lessons are from that experience of Project Maven and the tensions with Silicon Valley, and then also how you think the relationship between the Pentagon and Silicon Valley has developed in the subsequent five years or so. Yeah, let me start now and then work my way back. Uh, much better now than yeah. it was five years ago for a lot of different reasons. Um, one is uh, Ukraine. And, and a lot of companies have said, based on what we see Russia doing to Ukraine, maybe there is more value in working with the Department of Defense. So there's mm-hmm. that that reluctance um, is not nearly as much today as it was six years ago. And even, e- even six years ago, at the beginning of Project Maven, there were plenty of companies that were not only uh, willing to work with us, they're excited to work with us. They just didn't talk a lot about it. They didn't get a lot of headlines. <laughs> the ones that got the headlines are the ones that said, we don't want to work with the Department of Defense as a small subset of overall Google. So if I go back to those days, uh, one, I was not shocked because we saw it building internal to the company. I was very disappointed. Naturally, I mean, here's here is the best company in the world at doing software development, cloud, and all this. Saying we don't want to work with the Department of Defense, but that was not what the senior leadership was saying. So it just got to the point internal to the company where they said it, it, we have to put the firestorm away for a little while. So they just decided not to extend the contract. Contract ended. They were very helpful to us. I love everything they did for us, but it was it was a little bit of a painful episode. Uh, but um, to Google's full credit, they helped other companies use that same technology that they were helping us with to continue to help us. So it all all kind of got, got solved. Mm-hmm. And Google's in a very different place today. Maybe the people that protested <laughs> are not happy that it's in a different place today, but it's in, a, it's in a different place today. I would say that there's always going to be some reluctance to work on anything related to drones and autonomous weapon systems. Just just the nature of the animal. What we're seeing today is a beginning of, of a different conversation of you know what, we do want to work with the Department of Defense, but we prefer that we go work with you on these things. Mm. When it comes to the uh, lethal effects of weapon systems, we need to have a a more in-depth conversation about what that might mean. And that's fine. Every company goes through some review. That's just the way it is. What What I say is this was a canary in a coal mine moment for us. We were much better off, we are much better off today having gone through that process six years ago, than if we were to do it now in a conflict or a crisis starts building and we're dying to decide, will you work with us? Mm. No, I think what we have to decide is what does the world look like five years from now? What is the relationship of the United States government, industry partners, and academia? Um, I don't want to always talk about the halcyon days of the 50s and 60s when that partnership was incredibly strong and deep, but I would like to see more of that back. And we're mm. seeing that conversation mature beyond that. We don't want to work with lethal autonomous weapons. It's a different conversation. What do you think of the new class of kind of defense tech startups that are gaining a lot of traction in Silicon Valley, gaining a lot of funding, the endurals of the world, if you will? I like what I see because they were the first to come help us in the early days of Maven and the Jake. When others mm-hmm. would say, we're not so sure, some of those companies said, we're in, we're in. What, what can we do to help? Um, 
and I don't want to call out any company by name, but we worked with everybody you mentioned and, and a lot more because they had a willingness to work with us. And a lot of those companies had people that had come from somewhere in the government to include people that have worked um, in the military downrange, as we say, in combat operations. And, and the, what they went through and say, why would we ever accept that as normal in the future? There are technology solutions that will make us much better at doing that. So I am I'm, I'm so enthusiastic about this. Everything I do today is oriented towards that defense industry helping the government out. Mm -hmm. I understand the moral objections to warfare. I understand the moral objections to lethal autonomous weapon systems. But I also am somebody that had 36 years in uniform that I look at the world maybe a little bit differently about trying to protect the people in uniform, trying to limit civilian casualties, trying to minimize collateral damage. It is not a perfect world. It's a very Combat is an ugly place to be. There's always going to be bad things that happen. But I would like to see this technology be used to minimize those bad things from happening. And these companies were first pounding on the door saying they're ready mm -hmm. to help. So let's turn to how the U.S. military is now trying to integrate AI into its work. How would you assess the U.S. military is doing in its attempts to use AI in the warfighting enterprise? Highly enthusiastic, but the results are not good enough yet. It's not scaled far enough across the military. I still feel like, um, well, for, I'll say that I stepped back from the trees that I was buried inside of for five years, and now I'm looking at the forest, and it's a better forest than it was six years ago. No question about it. A lot has happened, but is it sufficient? It's not even close to being sufficient. If you break down the budget numbers and see what's really being spent for AI, real AI, the fraction of a percent compared to the rest of the Department of S budget. As they always say in Washington, D.C., follow the money. Yeah. The money isn't there for AI, and it should be there. I was asked when I went up on the Hill for the AI Insight Forum that the, the Senate uh, ran, and I was put on the spot. I said, well, it's not enough funding. What would you recommend? And I said, 20X. That's a starting point. 20X funding than whatever it is today. And even then, that would only be $20 billion, which some people say $20 billion is a lot of money. They're right, but in terms of defense... Defense Department's budget, it's not that much money. It's not that much money in the context of AI investment That's right. either. That's right. And to look at what commercial companies are spending on AI, their research and development budgets are massively bigger than the Department of Defense when it comes to AI. But they know that's they have to do that investment, research and development, because it will pay off eventually. So it's nowhere close to what I would like to see. But on the other hand, knowing the pace of government that I know, I'm also encouraged by signs of progress and, and hope and optimism. Um, it, a lot more needs to be done, but it's a better place now. Mm. It seems like a lot of the focus is on human machine teaming, um, swarming technology, right? W what do you think of the, the initiatives that the department is pursuing right now? How are they doing? Yeah, they're all good initiatives. What I would like to see is there always need to be aligned with the broader national defense strategy. Okay, you're doing that that new technology to do what? How does that align to what the combatant commands needs are? The combatant commands are the warfighting commands of the Department of Defense. The services develop capabilities, so the combatant commands fight with those capabilities. I don't think there's still enough emphasis on supporting the combatant commands, the actual warfighting piece of it. You also said something that I wanna, I wanna emphasize, this idea of human machine teaming. It's underappreciated how much work has to be done to figure out what a human machine team really looks like. Mm. Because we're talking about a new tech. People have been talking about human machine teaming in uh, kind of older technologies for decades. Some PhD dissertation has been written, that's forever, outstanding. It wasn't taking into account 
what an AI smart system looks like. And as we can see, just from the idea of needing prompt engineers with ChatGPT, something is fundamentally changing in the world of AI. Um, some people have said prompt, prompt engineers are the equivalent of, of elevator operators. They'll go away after a year or two because you don't need them anymore. And I, I actually think that that's true, having used ChatGPT quite a bit. However, how do we optimize both the human and the machine? The human is used to making up for all sorts of machine limitations in the past with old technology. If you want to optimize, Real smart machines in the future, you can't do that anymore. You have to let the machine do what the machine does, and the human does what the human does, and then at some point the human does oversight, if necessary, to make the combination better than the individual uh, components. Mm, okay. I want to close by maybe addressing the thorny moral question around all of this, which you've hinted at a little bit of the, um, the use of lethal autonomous weapons. It's a future that we're, we're barreling towards, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's seems inevitable that at some point in the future we will have weapons deployed on the battlefield that will be making some kind of autonomous decision about the use of lethal force which understandably a lot of people get really freaked out about mm -hmm. and i'm wondering if you might speak to what you think that future should look like and what a responsible version of that future should look like of all the things um, we did during my time in Project Maven and the Jake, the one I don't talk an awful lot about, but I am um, prouder of than almost anything else, is standing up what we call a responsible AI division to, to address these very issues. And in fact, there is now a series of AI ethics principles that the Secretary of Defense signed out in my final five months in the building. And after that, they came up with an implementation plan. So that was a starting point. And when I say responsible AI, what do I mean? I mean AI assurance and test and evaluation to make sure that what you're fielding meets the a number of different criteria. Is it, is it reliable? Is it safe? Is it governable? And on and on. Because I believe this is something we're going to wrestle with very quickly. I, I, I am not the uh, apocalypse now scenario of lethal autonomous weapon systems being out there on a battlefield as agents making life or death decisions. I still believe, as you and I talked about several years ago, that humans are in that process somewhere. Mm. Where Where is it? And that's, I think this is what it's going to come down to. So when Department of Defense puts out this, this directive called autonomy and weapon system, it uses a term called appropriate levels of human judgment. If you combine that with this other term called meaningful human control, we get caught up in that. What do we, people mean? So in Geneva, these big conversations about what do you mean by that? Well, that's a good discussion. If you read this directive, as I did again before before coming here, there is a process which the department has to go through in excruciating detail to approve these before they're developed and then before they're fielded by a, all the senior people in the Department of Defense, including the lawyers, by the way, who have a key component of this. We take this part seriously. I take it very seriously. I don't believe in this idea of an accountability gap, that because machines could act as their own agents in the future, humans will no longer be responsible. I refuse to believe that. As somebody that spent 36 years in uniform, I believe people are held accountable and people mm. are responsible for bad things that happen on the battlefield or even outside the battlefield. Now, does it become a little bit more complicated to assign us accountability? It does. But if a commander agrees to field a system and a person that has been trained to use that system uses it incorrectly or improperly or unethically, they should be held accountable for it. Now, you could legitimately question, does the Department of Defense always hold people accountable for bad things that happen on the battlefield? Okay, separate question. But I believe with every, with every bone in my body that we have to have a process that continues to place the human at the center of accountability and responsibility. We must do it that way because you're right. I agree with you. In certain circumstances, we could have autonomous weapon systems that are AI-enabled 
that are allowing weapons to be fired autonomously, but under what conditions? You mm. still have to adhere to the law of armed conflict, international humanitarian law, what we call rules of engagement, what we call special instructions, and what we call international norms. Those have never gone away and they will not go away. And we should refuse to even talk about whether they're going away. They have to be central to the conversation. So to me, the conversation is about how do you make sure that everybody understands what they're doing with these systems, how they're using them, where they could go wrong, how an adversary could attack them and force them to do things you never expected. What does that mean to me? We have to red team them. We have to look at the edge cases, the boundary cases where bad things can happen. So I think there's a lot of work that has to be done in the review system, the review process to do this. And as I, as I told you, there are several services that are beginning to run through these test cases to work through this process and understand what would it really take to get approval for one of these systems mm. to be fielded. And I believe that in some cases, it will not just be the Secretary of Defense who approves it for deployment and employment, but potentially, depending on how sensitive this is internationally in geopolitics, and maybe that goes up to the White House and they have to make the final decision, depending on what we're talking here. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons we engage in these track two dialogues. So each side understands what are these worst case scenarios. And by the way, it's in your best interest and our best interest to have safe and responsible system, because if it goes wrong, you're going to kill your own people. We're going to kill the wrong people too. Mm -hmm. So I, so I think this is a, this is an incredibly important conversation and I, and I don't accept, I've said this publicly and I'll continue to say, I don't accept that being responsible, uh, stewards of these technologies slows us down and we're going to lose the fight against, you know, China. That's just silly to me. We've done test and evaluation rigorously for every weapon system that's ever been developed. This should be no different. Mm -hmm. It can still move fast, but it, it still needs to be put in place. All right. Chair Shanahan, thank you so much for coming on the thank show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me in. All right. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.